0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hoag, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And thank you for joining us for day 12 of Epic versus Apple's testimony. If you haven't been following this story from the very beginning, please do check out our An Antitrust Epic playlist, which talks about Everything related to this story in great detail, starting from the mega drop last fall when Epic declared war on Apple and Google, as I said here in the first video in that playlist. If you are instead only interested in the testimony, the drama, the highlights of what's actually being discussed in the courtroom this past 12 days of testimony, please do check out instead our Epic versus Apple, just the trial playlist. With that as background, let's dive into what actually happened on day 12, with thanks again to Addie Robertson of The Verge for putting out these live tweets that help us talk about what these journalists are seeing and are reporting on in trial. Day 12 of Epic versus Apple starts in 15 minutes. More testimony from Phil Schiller, who we talked about yesterday, and is the head of marketing, or was at the time that is of interest in this case, the head of worldwide marketing at Apple, and helped design things like the iPhone. And then maybe... Apple's head of game business development, Michael Schmidt. Now, he comes in in the last 10 minutes or so of today's testimony. We'll mention that he comes in, but he won't be discussed in this video. Instead, what we are getting is a very, very long form cross examination of Phil Schiller by Epic with some minor Apple redirect towards the end. So, as we discussed yesterday, Phil Schiller came in to talk about the greatness of the iOS ecosystem, the wonders of the iPhone and the iPad, all in an effort from the Apple side of things to establish the value proposition of what Apple offers to its development partners. The developers that want to put apps on the App Store. They do all these technological things. They improve the phone. They contain security. They sell their product. It's holistic. IAP is all part of the App Store, which is all part of the iOS, which is all part of the phone. That's been Apple's theory of the case this entire time. And Epic is now going to cross-examine Mr. Schiller to try to establish Why they don't think that's the case, how Apple is acting arbitrarily, how it's doing things that aren't to the advantage of its developers, and hopefully, from Epic's perspective, prove to the court that Apple is acting not only as a monopolist, but a monopolist that is using the power of a monopoly illegally to restrain competition and to harm the possibilities for an open market. Let's see how much they succeed. Phil Schiller is back on the stand, and we're back where we ended yesterday with all of the tech on the iPhone. Apple's lawyer is asking Schiller to describe ARKit, Apple's augmented reality system. And then you see not just ARKit, references to Core ML, all this other stuff. Apple is trying to establish that, hey, when we get our 30%, it's not just for payment processing. It's not even just for app store access. It's for everything we use and spend and engineer and research that goes into the phone. And whether or not you think that's successful will largely depend on How you think Epic responds to this at the top of their cross-examination? Apple hands, Schiller over to Epic for cross-examination now. Epic's lawyer starts by drawing a distinction between native and web apps, saying many of these iOS features aren't available to web apps. The iOS features that Mr. Schiller was touting as value that Apple presents to its developer partners and... I think that's correct. Again, however, I think it's a more useful avenue of attack, not for Fortnite, which can access the App Store if it's not otherwise violating the App Store guidelines as it did last fall, but for the xClouds and the GeForce Nows of the world, which basically can't exist in the App Store guidelines as they are written right now. And are being asked to put their applications in browser form, which Microsoft is attempting to do with xCloud. So Epic comes in here and says, yeah, you provide all that value, you get your 30%, but that doesn't apply to web browser folks, does it? And of course it doesn't. It also doesn't take a commission for web browser applications because you aren't going through the app store. So it's six and one half dozen the other, but I do think it's at least a useful discussion point for Epic to say, you are touting all these things And then you are, arbitrarily, because you're an evil monopolist, kicking certain things off of your app store, asking them to go through the browser and making it more difficult for consumers and other folks to find them and consolidating your power base within your app store and your iOS ecosystem. The reason that web apps and native apps have differences is because the web apps have to be rendered through a browser, correct? That's one difference. There are others, Schiller says. Also, developers have to use Apple's own WebKit tools to render. The lawyer notes that of eight API slash software tools Schiller talked about, web developers can't use seven of them. And again, if Microsoft is sitting here making this case about how an xCloud browser app isn't the same as a native app made available on the App Store, I think you might have something close to a winner here. Epic isn't Microsoft and this legal case isn't about those things. Epic just continues to use them, rightly so, to establish that Apple is arbitrary, capricious, anti-competitive on a holistic level not with respect to what epic is actually offering to sell into the store which makes it one step removed and makes it harder for the court to decide in their favor on a question like this one apple uses a lot of open source software and discloses it the lawyer says and that goes into apple innovations schiller says yes but he's not exactly sure how much of them it comprises And then it says Epic delving real deep into reading out the text of licensing agreements, where if you've ever used open source software or any other kind of software license, very often there are attribution requirements. So if you go and you look at an end user license agreement that did use some component of either middleware or open source, you'll see the name of that software, whatever the attribution requirement is. This is something that lawyers do all the time. And in fact, if you have enough of it, you might make an exhibit or an addendum that's pages and pages and pages long just to get all the attributions into your documents properly. But what Epic's trying to establish here is that when Apple goes and touts all of these innovations and features and growth of their platform, that it's somehow not responsible for it because others are also contributing to that development. And that's true. That's undoubtedly the case. Software engineering in general often sits on the shoulders of other giants and uses advancements and research from other places in order to make their own. I think it's the wrong direction to go if you're Epic to suggest that Apple isn't, even if it's taking constituent parts from a bunch of different places, doing something on an engineering basis to create the iPhone. That yes, even if you use open source, even if you use middleware, even if you use things from other places, you still have the engineering task of incorporating all of that into your operating system, into your hardware, making sure it all gels together. I don't think this is terribly useful, but you can see where Epic's trying to get, which is Apple says, we get all this value. We give all this value to developers and Epic starts out by saying, well, that's not available to web folks. True. And also you didn't build that. You didn't create that yourself, which is true to some extent in terms of constituent parts. It's not true to the extent that they combined them all, made an operating system, and are offering that as a single package to consumers on the one hand, and to developers that are using it on the other. So the first one, probably a little bit more effective than the second, but you can see what Epic is trying to do. Epic finally and mercifully stops the reading of the licensing agreements, noting the issue is that Apple is taking total credit for all innovations in the iPhone when really it's built on lots of existing tech. Probably true. Not even sure Apple would deny it's built on existing tech, but I'm not sure Tim Sweeney or Epic Games would deny that there are elements of other tech that goes into developing any tech company and their products and services in 2021. Now we're going through the difficulty of switching movie libraries from Apple TV. Schiller apparently sent around an email based on this report. This report is from 2013, and Schiller notes most people will just stream movies now, not buy them at this point. Another moment of witnesses and lawyers working around a lot of evidence having been gathered in the midst of pretty major changes in the industry. And I think that's true. I do think it illustrates an important point when we talk about the intersection of technology and law. You've heard me say how bad certain things, both from a regulatory environment and from a judicial legal environment, things are when they're trying to deal with technology questions. And part of that is because all of these functions, whether it's government or regulatory agencies or courts, are premised around evidence and solid reports and analysis and things of this nature. And technology moves so fast that in very many instances, these kinds of systems, a court system like this, isn't so good at capturing all that the report from 2013 is very useful information except for the fact that the market is wildly different from what it was in 2013 so you can see how this becomes problematic for trying to make a decision in 2021 for this judge for the court of appeals that will eventually rule on this case as well And it's just part and parcel to having these conversations. It's one of the reasons you hear me say regulatory agencies should take a step back, make sure they know what they're doing on these things because all of this evidence is changing very, very rapidly. And I wish it could go faster. I wish the courts could go faster. Epic versus Apple is about as fast as you can have it happen. You had the inciting event in August of last year. You have a court case in May of the next year between two giant companies. This is as expedited as I have seen one of these cases. And yet... The evidence the discovery is still in some ways outdated yes schiller says he looked back at some documents and remembered things he hadn't in deposition around emails like this and leon island on twitter put this out food for thought from philip schiller do we think our 70 30 split will last forever while i am a staunch supporter of the 70 30 split and keeping it simple and consistent across our stores, I don't think 7030 will last that unchanged forever. I think someday we will see enough challenge from another platform or web-based solution to want to adjust our model. Already, Google has rolled out a web in-app purchase model at 95.5. If someday down the road we will be changing 7030, then I think the question moves from if to when and how. I'm not suggesting we do anything differently today, and this email is from 2011, only that whenever we make a change, we do it from a position of strength rather than weakness, that we use any such change to our advantage if possible. And thinking about this long in advance can only help to look at an eventual change as an opportunity with developers, press, customers, et cetera. And this is the email that I asked to see yesterday that is about if we're making over a billion dollars, maybe we drop it to 70, 30, to 75, 25 And was that a promise? Epic wants to say that that's some kind of promise. Obviously, it's an internal email. It's not a promise of any kind. But even here, this isn't the kind of communication that I find overly problematic. And maybe this is the corporate lawyer in me speaking. But you've got what amounts to a competitor in a market in Apple saying, here's our number. We should be responsive to market changes. And we should be analyzing what is happening in the market and determining whether or not we have to react to it. And... Apple hasn't had to react to it since it really opened up with 70-30. Now, is that a problem with monopolistic control of their iOS or is that a problem with outside competition to the phone on the whole? That's going to be one of the questions that the court has to ask because Apple controls its product line and whether or not this is a problem is really up to your perspective. Schiller says his memory was jogged when Epic started talking about a plan for a walled garden. When you said that to me, It really stuck in my mind. What whole plan, Schiller says. You wanted to make sure you knew how to explain it, lawyer says accusingly. Epic's lawyer is so aggressive that it's almost a little hard to follow Schiller's questioning here. And we skipped a lot of it because Epic is posturing with their lawyers uh, as part of this. They're asking questions very aggressively to Mr. Schiller. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, There's a whole number of different strategies that you can use, both on direct and cross-examination. When dealing with these kinds of things, Epic has come out as fiery bulldog at the start of these questions. Uh, But I do think that when Mr. Schiller has, and this comes up in a number of places in this cross-examination, says, well, there isn't a plan. We're just trying to make the thing attractive. We're trying to make sure that user retention is high. The Epic lawyer probably isn't doing a lot of useful things by suggesting that he wanted to know how to explain what happened. And so he recalled things in documents that he didn't recall from 10 years ago. And that's somehow unethical or looks bad. That's not really going to have the effect, I don't think in court that Epic Lawyer wants to uh, infer or imply in this particular context, and yet they will continue to do it. We're bringing up an email to Steve Jobs. Schiller said it was a really bad idea to have people see Google contacts instead of Apple ones on the iPhone. Schiller says it was just an attempt to make sure people saw the contacts they expected to see. A 2008 email with Scott Forstall is being discussed now. Schiller said, you're right android will be completely open i don't see how we can have anything like their license and business model schiller went on to say it felt just like the argument earlier this year around app distribution which was an argument for an education specific issue only schiller says now not overall openness on the store so epic is trying to bring up all these emails this is an important executive in apple's history and trying to establish that what apple was doing was nefarious and just like we talked about yesterday The overall different sides of the spectrum here are does Apple have a defensive, legitimate reason to do what it did or was it all kind of stroking their mustaches and sitting in smoke-filled back rooms and saying we are going to anti-competitively control this market in some fashion. And so Apple's Witness here is saying, no, we had reasons for this and this and this. And I think, honestly, some of this doesn't sound great. Uh, Like, I doubt very much that this argument from this email was actually about education specific issues, but there's nothing that Epic can bring up to suggest that it isn't. So it's like, well, okay, you take your credibility into consideration if you're the judge and you're evaluating these things. Schiller is not going to say anything bad about what Apple did. So how truthful, how open is he being? Which isn't to suggest he's lying to the court but that he's maybe not presenting things in a light that would be seen as negative for Apple, which you would expect, but doesn't create a lot of clarity for actually making the decision. Epic Lawyer now accuses Apple of basking in your power to destroy another's company's business, citing that 2008 email that discusses the hypothetical of starting an ads API on the closed system. And where would Google be then? The email asks, Schiller objects to lawyer repeatedly referencing the plan to keep iOS closed or similar. Does the word plan make you feel uncomfortable? The lawyer asks. Schiller says she just keeps suggesting there's a specific plan to close off iOS and it's not true. And you see this kind of aggressiveness. But again, we back up a step, right? Epic's trying to frame this as nefarious by saying, where would Google be then? And I don't think it works. And one of the fundamental issues with antitrust law, and we've talked about it a lot here, and we've talked about it in Department of Justice statements. We even talked about it with respect to the House Judiciary Report, which we'll see referenced as part of this video, is that antitrust has a fundamental problem that's very difficult to solve for anybody looking at it from the outside in on these business relationships. And that is successful competition, ruthless, devastating competition is what the law wants to have happen. But if you're wildly successful in that devastation, it can tend to look anti-competitive. So Epic wants to frame Apple saying, where would Google be then as nefarious that they're trying to destroy Google? The problem is, yeah, they are. That's what competition looks like. Apple saying, we wanna take Google's market share away. We wanna make a product that is more successful. We wanna do these various things. That's what competitiveness is. That's what the US jurisprudence wants to have happen. And by bringing up Google, as what i think most people see as a kind of similarly positioned tech giant that can't really be cowed by the apples of the world you're not creating a situation where somebody looks at this from the outside and says oh well apple's just trying to smack down the little guy you're saying apple's trying to compete with google google's trying to compete with apple that's what this looks like and i don't think it really works to somebody that has a familiarity with how corporations try to win market share now if you had an email like this where Apple is saying, where would small company be then without our help? That's a smoking gun. That looks a lot more like what you're trying to prove, which is Apple closing off markets to harm competition, not competitors. That's one of the really important distinctions in antitrust law. The law does not care about you destroying competitors. Competition implies that we want you to be using your efforts to destroy competitors, that we think that that's what gets a better product and more consumer welfare out there in the world. What we don't want is you killing the actual process of competition. So Apple with an email behind the scenes saying we want to hurt Google, that doesn't change the actual equation to my eye and I would doubt very much it changes it to the court's eye. We're going over another email where Schiller discusses whether Apple will need to publish App Store guidelines at some point in the future. Building on a user asking why they can't play their favorite games, Epic puts it forward as an example of Apple being willfully opaque. There's also a 2010 message to developers who got their apps rejected saying they could go in front of a review board, but if you run to the press and trash us, it never helps. Two things here, right? One, I think Epic's line of argument that they've really focused on for the bulk of this trial is a good one. That Apple is known out there in the world as making some really weird decisions that are very difficult to understand from the outside. And the more Apple makes those weird decisions, the more Apple looks like it's acting arbitrarily and capriciously or here with opacity then you can start to frame Apple as a bad actor that is doing these things not because it just doesn't care and it's just arbitrary on the whole, but that it's using that vagueness and that quote-unquote arbitrariness to defend itself in an illegal manner, to maintain its monopoly position, to maintain even a vertical monopoly in the content that it produces on its own app store in a fashion that is deliberately designed to violate antitrust laws. And I think that's a useful mechanism The question is whether or not Apple can defend against their arbitrariness in each and every instance. And for the most part, the court isn't going to be willing to second guess what are ostensibly reasonable things that Apple says about why it does what it does. The second point here is a little bit more interesting, right? You have Apple walking the line saying, don't go to the press with this because it doesn't help in reviews. That's undoubtedly the truth. By the way, that's perhaps a corporation being too honest. And one of the reasons why in virtual legality, we talk about corporate messaging and we talk about why messages pop out the way they do and who your audience is. Apple saying if you run to the press, it's not going to help your board review is probably very accurate in terms of Apple analyzing whether or not to allow something on the App Store. It's also not directly a part of their review and is adding something else that says, if you make us look bad, we're not going to let you on the app store, even if you otherwise pass the rules. Now, Apple in general, absent this lawsuit and in 2010, questionably not acting as a monopolist, according to Epic's own experts that said it started sometime in 2010, can say, we don't want to have any relationship with you at all. And we've talked about that with respect to tech companies, Google and Facebook and Twitter and Twitch can just say, you know what, you're not good for our brand. We're gonna demonetize you, we're gonna kick you off. That's just what we do. And Apple can say, we don't want your app on here because you went to the press, because you sued us in federal court, whatever reason. But if you're trying to present as they have in this case and elsewhere, that your rules are open and transparent and equally observed for any given party, If you don't have a rule about going to the press, which you shouldn't in your guidelines, then you shouldn't be saying it in the email separately. And I think that's another good line of attack from Epic. Epic's lawyer says that's part of a pattern of Apple learning to be more careful by 2019. This is dealing with an e controversy. When Apple execs start talking about, as Tim Cook writes in an email, a long-term competitive advantage among enterprise and consumers. So, Here's another avenue that Epic is trying to take here, and they don't go too far into it, or at least it's not summarized in this uh, Twitter thread. And that is trying to establish that even though the rules look the same, even though Apple didn't change the prohibition on a store within a store and what it takes to get into the app store and the requirement to use IAP, they were behind the scenes effectively, practically changing the rules, changing how they talked about them in such a way that you can start to frame a case that Apple used its monopoly power. One of the things we've talked about in this space is that Epic's got a high road to climb, a high hill to find itself on because Apple really didn't fundamentally, at least on the outside, change what it was asking its partners to do from when it started the App Store to now in 2021. And Epic just comes out of nowhere and says, we're gonna fight it in the fall of 2020. One of the things Epic can try to do, and it wouldn't surprise me if they continue on this tack for the rest of the week, is try to establish that that arbitrariness, that capriciousness, that opacity is, as these emails they're pointing out from Tim Cook and others uh, say, actually establishing a new unwritten set of rules that was the exertion of monopoly power to the harm of other folks within the Apple ecosystem. I don't think Epic presses on it too hard from what I can see on this thread But it is of interest because it's another thing that Epic should be trying to do. As we pointed out, their expert having that one year in the sand and Apple not changing its approach does present a practical problem for what's going to happen here. Epic Lawyer lays out how passwords work on a platform-specific manager. Unless I remember all of those automatically generated passwords, I'm out of luck on every single step. Schiller says you just have to reset every password with Android. And they're talking about how difficult it is to move things over between ecosystems. And you get essentially both sides kind of lying, right? You've got Epic pretending like there isn't any ability to reset a password or any way to ever move an account. And it's just so ridiculously hard as if so many people in the world don't move accounts in between ecosystems all the time. And then you have Apple saying, ah, it's no big deal. It is... In the middle of that, it's often hard to move accounts between things. Yes, you can reset passwords. If you've got two factor on, it's often, you know, three different emails and two numbers and a password and all these various things, especially if it's an important account to you, but it's not impossible. You don't need to remember everything. It's also not the easiest thing in the world. And unfortunately, as a number of you have commented on these videos, this is what litigation winds up looking like is both sides essentially not lying to the court, but presenting Heightened almost caricatures of their various positions in order to try to make it look as strong as possible. When maybe something that's a little bit more reality adjacent would help to make their case a little bit more. Again, these are strategies that the sides use, and certainly both sides are being very aggressive here. Then we go on a long tangent in this thread about Epic pulling up sexual materials on the iPhone, which I have spared you most of the substance here, except for this tweet. Now Epic's lawyer is just reading out a bunch of alleged BDSM kink apps that she found by searching through the App Store, including ones with in-app purchases. And here, Epic, I think, is again making good inroads on the suggestion that Apple is again maybe a little bit arbitrary. They say they don't want this objectionable content in their App Store. And so if I can go in and I can spend an hour of the court's time just looking up sex apps on the app store or other things that might otherwise be deemed problematic by Apple, then maybe I can make the case that Apple is picking and choosing winners, which they are. That's what the app guidelines say that they are doing. The question is, is whether they are doing it within the ambit of those rules or if they're doing it under some other power. And then Epic has to show that that is somehow illegal and somehow being used to maintain their monopoly presence in a fashion that they don't like. Again, it's not about harming competitors. It's not about harming individual developers. It's about harming the overall concept of competition. And is that something that's actually happening? Okay. Epic's lawyer is pulling up TikTok. I guess I didn't spare you all of them. And we're searching for BDSM on TikTok. You would agree with me that there's a variety of search returns for the word BDSM under TikTok. This is your phone and not mine, Schiller says. I think I just liked that response. And as we've seen in this litigation, when you're on cross-examination, sometimes the witness can be hostile uh, and whatnot, and certainly uh, this is a joke kind of answer, but you also have other instances where he says he doesn't understand Reddit. He's never heard of some of those porn websites, uh, and it's, it's interesting. It's also one of the reasons why you see settlements is you don't like to get into litigation where you're answering these kinds of questions from your executive members of a multinational corporation. Epic's lawyer notes you can access Not Safe for Worth Work subreddits on the Reddit app on iOS. Worth noting, Apple does require some additional content filtering on apps like Discord, which has been controversial. We're going to come back to this. Reddit's an interesting case study because Apple appears to also put lockouts on accessing certain content on Reddit from Safari, from the web browser that makes you go over to the app. And it's very interesting to see exactly how those interact. Schiller said the small business price drop was spurred by the pandemic lawyer says it was about monopoly concerns i don't think those points are mutually exclusive says the witness but in part it was certainly a consideration of creating it was that we were hearing feedback worldwide and epic's trying to establish that the only reason the price was dropped was that these lawsuits were threatened and these lawsuits are premised around the fact that the price was too high and it wouldn't drop without market pressure and so if you drop it when we sue you on an antitrust lawsuit, then obviously we are simulating market pressure. You're trying to avoid damages from this lawsuit and it's evidence that you didn't face that market pressure before our lawsuits. And again, I think it's a, it's a good line of attack. However, you could just as easily say from Apple's standpoint that it had nothing to do with this and we were arguing for it earlier, which is what Schiller says. You don't have to believe it. He says Epic's lawsuit was only a factor, but it was really about the pandemic. Certainly the pandemic confuses this question. But again, I think Epic's doing all right here with the cross-examination of a very scattershot initial testimony, right? You might look at this and say, well, Epic's all over the place, and they are, but this particular witness on Apple's side was all over the place himself. They were just trying to establish how great the iPhone was. It was almost like a conference presentation. So it's no surprise that the cross-examination is in and of itself scattershot in the same respect. I don't know that it's been profitable since 2009, Schiller says of the App Store, says he doesn't know about its profits. How can that possibly be? Because that's not how I look at the business and not what I measure the team on. It never comes up, it doesn't. We don't deny that it likely is, I would say so. We just haven't managed the business that way. We manage it so there's one profit and loss statement. For the company. And again, it's probably at least a bit disingenuous to suggest that Apple's internal heads, their their big C-level executives, aren't acutely aware of what's working and what's not working with the strategies that they employ for their devices, including the App Store component of their iPhone an iPad device. It's also not wrong to suggest that they consolidated their financial statements in such a way that it's just one big company and research and development is all tossed in to what you're making from the app store. And you can't really burden the app store money being made with specific costs. And that means we don't technically know how profitable the app store is on its own. Epic got a little bit aggressive on this, says, I don't know how to start on the answer. I'm not saying we can't. I'm saying we haven't. And the lawyer says, because it's convenient not to, I don't know how much that is the case. It might be. Certainly there's litigations all over the place with respect to Apple and, and right now investigations, as we just saw with the European Union and Spotify. But it's also not wrong. You are, however, having a good effective cross-examination because you've now had one, two, three, maybe even four hits on this witness where it does strain credibility, where you're like, well, okay, that might not be a lie, but I have trouble believing that you don't have some cognizance of whether or not your strategies and what you're choosing to do are successful or not. Epic's lawyer moves on to the broader regulatory and legal complaints about Apple, A Spotify complaint, a congressional antitrust investigation that covered it in other companies, an EU investigation, and so forth. And this is one of those areas that I had actually expected to come up a little bit more strongly a little bit earlier in the case, not because it's terribly effective from a legal standpoint, right? If you've been following our discussions of this trial from the start, you probably have become aware that a lot of what is said in court doesn't necessarily immediately impact the legal question in play. And here, Other people have complained. Spotify, the European Union has acted, the House Judiciary Subcommittee, the EU, whatever it might be. Those are interesting, but they don't actually speak to the question of whether or not Apple violated this specific law in this specific instance that is the question before the court. Instead, you're essentially trying to establish through these questions that this is all happening, Judge, you should be aware of it, that you won't be on the outs if you decide to rule against Apple, that other people are already looking at it and think that Apple might be a bad actor. And you're trying to put this in the mind and in the stream of consciousness for the court and the deciding bodies. There's nothing wrong with that. Epic is right to do it. When the House Judiciary Subcommittee report came out, I said Epic is now a little bit more likely to win than they were before it came out because you can ask this question, because you can say to the court, Apple's being investigated everywhere. But from a legal standpoint, it doesn't change what is the legal question. That Spotify is having some success in the European Union means not a hill of beans to whether or not Apple violated the American Sherman Antitrust Act for purposes of what Epic is bringing up here but it can try to suggest that Apple's a bad actor and other people think so too. Now we have a tweet from Michael Acton who says, Strange in Epic versus Apple, do you recall learning that the House Antitrust Subcommittee completed an investigation into competition in digital markets? I don't recall that, Schiller says. This was a massive story. Did he misunderstand the question? And again, if you're a vice president or executive at Apple, you would expect that they would have noted that 40 plus pages were devoted in this report to Apple acting anti-competitively. You don't have to agree with it, but you probably are aware of it and... It's difficult to fight, and I don't recall, but again, straining credibility. You're trying to now establish just on any grounds, if you're Epic, that this guy isn't to be believed, and you can say that for what he originally testified to in the same instance, and I think Epic's having some success here. He's giving a number of answers that strain my credibility, uh, and for the most part, I think Apple's defenses are often justifiable for what they do. Confirming Schiller was aware of the controversy, there's an email titled Supportive Developers from June 21st, 2020. Apple was out looking for supportive developers for its competition issues before Epic begins its letters to Apple, correct? Lawyer cites a fragment of an email asking, Are there some other developers we could turn to quickly if we want something to support Apple? There's a list of developers that goes on for several pages. All developers likely to provide public statements of support for Apple. And again, it really is going to matter what your perspective on Epic and Apple as these two companies kind of interact actually is, because Epic tries to frame this as nefarious, trying to respond to what is undoubtedly a public relations issue for Apple with these various jurisdictions acting against them, with Epic rattling the saber that they're going to do something against them. And Apple going out and saying, who can we talk to that is very much on board Apple that can help put out some of this fire in terms of public relations? is not something that I find terribly nefarious. Certainly, if you already think they're the evil empire and Darth Vader walking around the Death Star, you can frame it that way, but you have to already have gotten to that level before you can see a communication that says, who's on our side and can we get them out in front of the press as something that is unexpected for a company to do. Now there's an email evaluating the possibility of a small business program like the one it implemented in 2020. Apple was looking for a way to take the smallest possible financial hit, right? Presumably, says the Epic lawyer. No, I don't agree with that characterization, Schiller says. And here, again, we're, we're on the credibility trail, right? Epic saying, look, Apple's trying to determine what it can do to make developers happy, what it can do to potentially win public relations points, to potentially stave off jurisdictional and regulatory issues. And they're looking to do it in a way that doesn't cost them more money than they otherwise would have to. That's the way every business works. Uh, Now, this is a marketing guy. He's not necessarily the guy responsible for all of these decisions, Uh, but I I don't know that the answer, no, I don't agree with that characterization is very helpful. I would say, yes, of course, any move that we make at a giant corporation like Apple is designed to provide products and services on an efficient level to our consumers that makes them happy, but also to find where that market is going to support our efforts. And yes, to not overly discount things that don't need to be discounted to have a price that the market will bear. But I'm not him. Apple collects a variety of information on Apple apps that that there's a way a user can find out what information is collected, but there's no way for a user to opt out, correct? Well, there's a way to opt out of many of the data types. Many, but not all. We're talking about data now. We're walking through what the App Store itself collects. Then the same for Apple Books, Apple News, Apple TV. Listings like financial information, contact information, search history. Lawyer says, it's a lot of information. Wouldn't you agree? Schiller, no, I wouldn't agree. Lawyer. Okay. And again, part of this, when you're cross-examining someone is just to, again, reintroduce to the court, these documents, these concepts that are already a part of the evidence file for what you're trying to get the court to decide on. This isn't a terribly useful bit of questioning, but you can see here, even with this kind of cross-examination that this witness is not particularly inclined to give any answer that would be remotely useful against Apple and for Epic. And that's fine, except it does tend to have this continuing straining effect of, I mean, it's a good amount of information, right? No? Okay. Fair enough. Lawyer brings up the launch of in-app purchases, and we're playing a clip from Scott Forstall deposition saying there were some apps using their own payment mechanisms, and these were required to switch over to IAP. I don't agree with that, Schiller says, after lawyer asks if it's true that devs were already offering IAP before Apple launched them. Schiller says he remembers people offering non-recurring subscriptions using in-app purchases before Apple officially introduced recurring subscriptions in the App Store. The lawyer says that if devs were offering in-app purchases or subscriptions before Apple made them official, you increased the cost to developers because you were implementing a program that then began to charge them 30%. And that's somewhat true. That's a characterization that's somewhat accurate. Certainly from the Apple standpoint, you could say, well, if it's not IAP, and there's some argument here, and we just don't know what the truth is behind all of this, unfortunately. If it's not IAP and it's only subscriptions, Apple could be essentially allowing it, what we've called largesse in virtual legality, until they have a mechanism to actually support it on their own end. And so does it charge them more? Yes. But you can certainly imagine a world in which they had communicated will allow this, even though it's a violation of our guidelines, which it appears to have been from the very beginning, because we can't support it right now anyway, and we don't want to kill your business model. It's pretty easy to spin that as something that's advantaging developers, uh, but Schiller doesn't do that here. Now looking at a 2011 document from Schiller to Eddie Q, This was before subscriptions were announced. Anyone offering a subscription service will need to add our new subscription billing within the app and remove all links to their web signup doesn't that suggest to you that you fully understood that there were subscription services being offered before Apple's own subscription program was announced? Schiller says that this relates to not being able to link out to a website, i.e. anti-steering rules, which is non-responsive to this question, which says, yes, we absolutely did know that there were subscription billing before we had our own subscription billing feature and we then made them move on. uh, But Instead of saying, well, we were trying to support them while we worked on our own mechanism, he just says it has nothing to do with us knowing about subscriptions. Again, Schiller not having the best cross-examination here. Lawyer hitting again on Apple, apparently not having seen actual security issues with third-party payment processing systems. Epic's lawyer asks how many apps have been rejected as a store within his store. Schiller says he doesn't know. Epic's lawyer mentions Fortnite's Create system, but Schiller says he's unfamiliar. He only plays Battle Royale. You never tried the creative mode, lawyer asks. I didn't find it interesting. And again, you get these snide comments. And actually here, I tend to agree. I enjoy Fortnite. I enjoy Battle Royale. I even enjoy Save the World. I don't like creative mode that much. But again, I don't like Minecraft that much. I don't like Roblox that much. That doesn't mean that a ton of people don't like them. It just means that I don't. Still a funny answer from a witness in a federal court case. We're back now. Epic's lawyer is talking about Apple failing to catch Minecraft copycat apps. Now on a related topic, an an email about Apple accidentally leaking Fortnite content. And here's an interesting standpoint, right? We talked about this in the testimony from the prior days of this case. And that is that in their security expert testimony, Epic's security expert was very adamant about the fact that the iOS was already secure. It really didn't need app review. And Apple's cross was focused on the fact that their code, their technological solutions doesn't prevent things like copycats, which eventually the Epic expert admitted to. Now you have Epic's lawyer quizzing Schiller about the fact that they failed to get some of these Minecraft copycat apps and we find ourselves back in this bucket that we've been in seemingly since day one that suggests that Apple's lack of perfection in app review should be read against it when in most circumstances it won't be. The law doesn't require you to be perfect because no human being is, no corporation is. It just requires it to be justifiable, that there is some advantage gain, uh, that App Review is doing something legitimate in the service of a legitimate business interest and is not just a nefarious hidden scheme to maintain your market control uh, over the access to your iOS ecosystem. So this is going to continue to be a point of contention between the parties and not one that's going to get resolved in anybody's testimony. They're referencing an email now where it seems like we're getting an answer. People could potentially buy tokens and then redeem them inside the iOS app, although Schiller says he's not sure that actually happened. This is them trying to sort out whether or not IAP was actually allowed in these various games. Now, tokens are things that are referenced in the app review guidelines, so it's possible that that was written in because Apple was dealing with that issue at some point in time. The question as ever is, does Apple have the right to address situations in its rules that it didn't anticipate when they were originally written? And the answer to that is yes. The question is whether they did so in an illegal fashion. And Epic isn't making that case here. They're just making the case that Apple acts with arbitrariness depending on what's in front of them. Apple has changed the algorithm, hasn't it, that relates to the search and preferences its own app, does it not? No, says Schiller. He says the algorithm looks at 42 variables, including popularity, closest to name, etc. Now, this is a point of contention, not just in this case, but with the House Judiciary Subcommittee, as we talked about earlier in the series, where they said that Apple advantages its own stuff, even if the names don't match, even if there aren't reviews, even if there aren't things that match up with these other variables, because Apple wants to advantage its own stuff. It's one of the things that that subcommittee found as a potential significant problem with the way Apple operates its store and search feature. So you've got here testimony that says it doesn't do that, but you've got findings in a separate context that suggests that it does. That's going to create problems and certainly credibility problems as we've talked about as part of this cross. Now we get back up for some reconditioning. Apple is back up for questioning. So we're going to work backwards again and talk about why Apple apps come up first in searches. Apple's lawyers on redirect say, okay, they've, they've made some inroads. They've knocked down some credibility. Let's try to save some of it. And we get answers like, One issue is that a surprisingly large number of people use search to launch apps on their iPhone, says Schiller. So they search big Apple apps they already have to launch them. And I have to admit to being guilty as charged in some respects here. Very often, if I've got enough things on my phone, I wind up using searches and searching the store is kind of your de facto last resort. If you really just can't find the thing that you need, you can find it through the store and just hit go instead of install. And that does work. Now, does that actually answer the question of why Apple apps should come up before other apps that I might be looking for? I don't think that it does. Uh, But again, this is the rehabilitation attempt here on redirect. Sheller goes through the rules of the enterprise program. We work with large scale corporations. We give them a special security key and they have to sign an agreement saying it won't distribute to consumers, et cetera, et cetera. We've got protections. We've got contracts. I think this is the most time anybody has ever spent reading the terms and conditions of an iOS app, which I included only because as I also tweeted out, I feel attacked. Virtual legality feels attacked, subtweeted. Uh, We read terms and conditions all the time, but certainly it's not the most fun thing to do. And they're trying to establish as Apple does that they do have some version of control of what appears in their app store. And in this particular case, Uh, It doesn't mean that it has to be perfect. This is the TikTok questioning. This is all the stuff on Reddit questioning. Uh, And shorter version of today's legal questioning is summarized by Ms. Robertson. Epic, sometimes Apple App Store review doesn't work. Apple, sometimes it does. And realistically, if Apple can win on sometimes it does, that's basically all they need to win in order to have a reasonable business justification for how they choose to operate. Lawyer brings up something I alluded to earlier. Apple requires some social app developers like Reddit to lock away not safe for work or offensive content on iOS unless they explicitly flip a switch on the web version of the service. And yes, that's happened to me. I I was looking up something uh, the other day. I think it was Returnal. I think you could probably check it out if you've got an iPhone right now. Uh, And I was looking up Returnal, the PlayStation 5 game. Very much enjoy it. Highly recommended. Go check it out. Uh, But I was looking up some stuff on Returnal and you went to the Returnal Reddit uh, through the browser on the iPhone. And it came up with a weird warning. It was something along the lines of this subthread or this subreddit doesn't accurately say whether it's not safe for work or not. So we're kicking you out. And it kicked you out to the, to the main window, which is not something I had ever seen before uh, from Apple. But it's, it's interesting, right? It suggests two things when you have something like that happen. One is that Apple is concerned with trying to control certain aspects Of what you can see through the Safari browser even though it doesn't control other aspects on the internet and I'm not exactly sure what Apple is gaining from doing certain controls but not others but two that it might be okay with certain things as long as it's in the app and not in the browser which is what the the Reddit page suggested is that you had to go to the app and log in in order to access that content what Apple is doing there is odd To me, and it's unclear exactly why it's doing those things. We don't get those answers here because essentially Apple is using it as a defense to say that we do try to control that access in some respects. uh, But how and why is still an open question and one that I think is vulnerable to Epic Attack insofar as it does appear to be arbitrary. When you do that for Reddit and you don't do that for let's call it some more significant nefarious things that you can find on the web, then what exactly are you trying to accomplish with those mechanisms? Uh, And is it something that really does relate to competition? Do you see Reddit as some kind of competitor when you don't see other services on the internet as a competitor? All of that vagueness, all of that arbitrariness really does work to Epic's advantage in suggesting that Apple is trying to do something nefarious. Now, have they actually dotted those I's and crossed those T's and made it clear that Apple is doing that? I don't think so. That's what we talked about yesterday. But certainly they've thrown a lot of fog in the room, a lot of ambiguity that the court could use if they wanted to do so. Apple's lawyer again, does Apple ever sell data? No. Does Apple ever share data with data brokers? No. Just again, rehabilitation, trying to establish Apple is a good guy. The long-term competitive advantage we referenced earlier and more sticky comments, Schiller puts in the context of Apple trying to stop phishing. Schiller lightly paraphrased, if users are better protected from phishing scams on our systems, people are going to want to use our systems. And this comes back to one of those diametrically opposed philosophical contentions which is Epic saying there's a plan to make people essentially beholden to the iOS ecosystem. And Apple says there was a plan to make our product really, really attractive and to make it quote unquote sticky by essentially having people not want to go anywhere. And one of the problems Epic has is that companies often refer to stickiness when they are referring to user retention. It costs a lot more to acquire users than it does to retain them, but you want to engineer and you want to create your product and you want to build your ecosystem to retain as many people as possible. And that goes for iPhones. It goes for insurance companies. That's the way businesses function. So when you say something is going to be sticky, that doesn't mean it's nefarious, but it could depending on what you mean by that use of that term. And they, Apple completely rejects the notion that plan and stickiness means what Epic wants to claim that it means. Apple's lawyer is asking about iMessage now, a huge data point in Epic's argument that Apple is explicitly trying to lock people into iOS by refusing to open it up. Schiller talks up the benefits of iMessage to iMessage communications like encryption. Then Apple's lawyer mentions the dreaded SMS green bubble. Why did Apple put the work in to create iMessage, lawyer asks. We thought it created an extra experience for our users that was unique and fun and better did apple ever consider opening up the iphone for developers to distribute apps on their own and bypass the app store no and iMessage just doesn't really come back up again again on redirect it says that run to the press comment you heard about was gone by 2016 in the latest developer guidelines and we weren't actually clear that it was in the developer guidelines directly at any point if it was that probably looks worse although it is more transparent than just sending emails to these folks How would having stores within stores impact app review? All the apps and services that are delivered through those stores are not reviewed by app review. And to that extent, it would eliminate review. You could have a store within a store within a store, and you could just get around the review. And that's part of this story as well. Part of this question, Epic tries to uh, eliminate it in certain respects in their testimony and in cross-examination like this one, that what is the impact practically of avoiding the app store requirement, of avoiding the IAP requirement? And they say, well, the App Store can still exist, the IAP can still exist, but if you can just get around it and not pay Apple anything, there's going to be a lot of people that do that. If you can have a store within a store within a store that just says, we're not going to review anything, and you can still get on the ecosystem and potentially not pay Apple anything to get access to that audience, people are going to take that avenue. And if, as the judge has suggested, she thinks, at least when this all started back last fall, Apple deserves something for developing and engineering and spending money building an iPhone and advertising it and selling this product out into the market, these present a problem because any avenue to get around that quote unquote toll booth, to quote an earlier metaphor in this case, is going to mean that very often you're not going to get anything out of that toll booth. And that's a problem for somebody that's running an ecosystem like a walled garden. Whether that walled garden should in and of itself be illegal is at the heart of this case. Apple lawyer brought up movies anywhere, a thing several people in my mentions have described as being a very good system for cross-platform media, and one that I believe iTunes supports. Schiller says he's never used it, and Apple's now done with its redirect questions. And I think what Apple's trying to establish here is that the iPhone does support things, that allow for cross-platform use. Movies Anywhere, if you're not familiar with it, is essentially a service that allows you to get a digital license for a movie on one service, like Voodoo, or I think Amazon is also included, and iTunes. And once that's in there, you can link it to an account with Movies Anywhere, and you can access that same license on any of a number of other platforms, whether it's iTunes, or Amazon, or Voodoo, or, or anything else. And that is very useful. And I think a lot of people would like to see that same kind of feature set for other things uh, in the world of digital content delivery. But Apple has indicated in a number of ways throughout this case that they view movies and video content differently from applications, software and most specifically for purposes of this conversation, video games. And I think that's justifiable, even though a lot of folks might not like it. Epic's back on cross raises one case of a company that had to remove in-app purchases of a sort, Amazon, Schiller says Amazon launched a store specifically to sell Kindle e-books because they didn't expect anyone to read books on an iPhone, so it was considered an external purchase. Amazon then added support for reading e-books within iOS, and Apple said Amazon either had to remove that feature, or force people to only read on the Kindle again, or start getting Apple a commission on what had become an in-app purchase, and that again, looks like it could be bad. Epic's trying to frame it as nefarious, but at least with the rubrics, the rules that Apple has set out in its testimony, it makes sense. If you're delivering something directly to a Kindle, we don't want any part of it. We don't want any liability. We don't know if it's getting to the Kindle. If you're putting something that works on our iPhone, we want that commission because we are doing things that are more directly related to determining whether that delivery happened. Now, You don't have to love that argument. You can even think it's specious. If it is, then Epic might have a better case in your eyes than they do in mine. But it is at least a justification and it's going to be useful to Apple in the long run. It probably would have been more useful if a lot of these kind of unwritten distinctions were a little bit clearer in their app guidelines themselves. We've got a little time left for today. Here comes Michael Schmidt. He's the head of the App Store's Game Business Development. He describes his role as being basically a liaison between developers. And we're not actually going to talk with Mr. Schmidt because he doesn't get to say much before the end of the day. What we are going to leave off on is Addy Robertson quoting Nick Stat here. Last Schiller note, I'm really curious about this now. He's one of the biggest witnesses and it feels like Epic left a lot on the table today. Now, what did Nick Stat say? Well, there were emails detailing special treatment Apple wanted to give Netflix to keep them using IAP and Amazon got special treatment for Prime Video. Spotify fought with Apple for years over the 30% cut in anti-steering rules, but Schiller wasn't really asked about any of that. And there's a couple of things going on here in my eyes. One, Those documents are still made available to the court. Those are documents that the court can read, is going to evaluate as part of its evaluation of all of this. Once Schiller presents as essentially saying nothing, and once you have established that a lot of these answers are straining credibility, there may not be a lot of usefulness to asking about any specific agreement. He said that they're treated the same. He said he had no idea about the antitrust uh, report in the House Judiciary Subcommittee. All of this isn't terribly useful to you and the court's time. So I'm not sure a lot was lost as Ms. Robertson and Mr. Stat say here, but certainly Epic appeared to be a little bit more scattershot and focused on credibility questions and focused on making the actual contentions of Apple look bad on how the iPhone operated it did in respect of these special development agreements and i do think apple probably short circuited some of these arguments early on by pretty much coming out and saying we don't think of video in the same way that you go onto the app store you're not going to find an individual movie that's different for netflix than xcloud we aren't thinking about amazon prime we aren't thinking about netflix in the same way and when we do negotiate one of those deals we apply it to everybody Right, the, the video partner program that they talked about which we talked about as part of this testimony where i said yeah it applies to everybody if you can get into that market as long as you're a multinational content creator that makes video services like this you can get this beneficial discount that amazon negotiated isn't terribly useful to most down the line developers it does exist but apple clearly changes their rules based on negotiations with big significant partners And we could expect if they had negotiated something with Netflix, they would have changed their rules, but it would really only benefit these giant companies that negotiated these specific dispensations directly. So I think it's a useful avenue. I think the documents probably already make that case. And Schiller just wasn't going to talk much, if at all, on these points. So that's day 12 with that we're wrapping up for the day we'll be back tomorrow morning where we get into more apple experts talking about those relationships with developers and the app store probably also getting into cross-examination i don't want to make promises because these apple testimonies have proven to be very long but it is an interesting difference in approach here now that we're in the apple defense side of things apple touting all the things that the iphone does great epic trying to establish that apple is arbitrary does make decisions that don't benefit anybody but itself and it's very difficult to understand how they're making those decisions certainly outside of the context of a courtroom and a litigation and whether or not epic's arguments here will really hold sway with the court is ultimately going to come down to where the judge and the court determines credibility on some of these things. Epic still has yet to kind of tie that knot that Apple's doing something nefarious and wrong, but I think they've done a pretty darn good job establishing that Apple makes decisions that don't make a lot of sense to the people that are just watching from the outside. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you enjoy talking about Epic versus Apple, business, technology, all of these questions, please consider supporting the channel. We couldn't do it without viewers and listeners like you. We've got a Patreon, Streamlabs, a store where you can buy things, or if none of that appeals, just subscribe, ring the bell, upvote, downvote, leave comments, tell your friends that we're here in this space having this conversation. Every little bit helps, and I am so very appreciative of everyone that talks about this space, that comes into the comments, that has these discussions with me, and frankly, that just watches these videos and hopefully finds them informative, educational, and if I'm lucky, entertaining. Thank you so much for watching this if you watch it on YouTube and if you listen to it, thank you so much for listening to it in its podcast form. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed,